Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. The latest CPI data out of the U.S. showed that inflation for January came in 0.5% higher than last month. On an annual basis, inflation rose to 6.4%, slightly higher than the 6.2% widely expected by economists. U.S. Treasury yields are climbing on the news, with the rate-sensitive two-year Treasury yield approaching the highest level since November. Today, we ask if the idea of a soft landing is still on the table, and where should you consider adding exposure in this environment? Fixed-income portfolio manager Jeff Moore sits down with host Brian Borsakowski today to unpack these questions and more, including providing his insights on fixed-income investing for the short and long-term, and to share where he is adding and reducing exposure in his funds. Now, for Canadian investors, Jeff manages several fixed-income funds, including Fidelity Multi-Sector Bond Fund, as well as ETFs and mandates for institutional clients. Jeff and team believes peak inflation happened in the second half of 2022, and he also notes if there is a hard landing, treasuries will do better than corporates, which is something the team is keeping an eye on for their portfolios. Among other topics, Jeff also reflects on bigger global market trends and trends in the institutional pension fund industry in the U.S., This podcast was recorded on February 15th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So naturally, the big uh, uh, you know news story here is inflation coming in just 0.5% higher. What do you make of that? And what does that signal for uh, for March? We still think the peak inflation happens second half of 2022. And so the, the only question we've sort of had, you know, even till, even till today is what sort of path down in, in, in inflation are we on? And we like to use the ski analogy. Are we on a green run, a blue run, or a, a diamond run? So green run being flat, blue run being a little bit tighter, and a diamond run being a huge retracement in inflation. The number that just came out, uh, did verify that for the large large part, goods inflation has rolled over and has calmed down. Uh, supply chain, not much of an issue anymore. Uh, we had lots of base effects, which is nice, and they're going to get bigger for the next quarter or so. Uh, so those pieces came sort of where the market thought. What was demonstrated some stickiness to inflation was wages and certainly owners' bonus rent. And so what do you think this means? I mean, can... Inflation. Well, we see uh, some something similar in March. Not, not, of course, we can't know. But you know, when you look at these numbers, what do you think that means for the future? When you kind of dig into this, yeah. So the good, so the good news, we think that um, we are still on the decline. We confirm to ourselves that inflation is still tracking lower. But the bad news is it's still sticky, sticky. And so that means that the market's going to have trouble really rolling anywhere, whether it's bonds or stocks, until the next print down in March when this tag up, if you will to inflation prints um, each month. And so I think what we're watching for in March is what's going on with OER and what's going on with wages. And OER is the one where we have the most sort of question marks because it's the most 
It's the hardest survey to focus on, right? It's the one with the most question marks. And in fact, if I step back one step and I think about um, January data in general, January data should be your least, you know, sort of clear data because it's the it's the one where um, the BLS, the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, does all its revisions. So in the month of January, the U.S. economy lost 2.3 million jobs. But when they, by the time the revisions were done, we were up a couple hundred thousand jobs. And so this is the kind of thing that in January, there's a lot of stickiness. There's a lot of uh, unique pieces, even things like retail sales in January. You're always saying, okay, did people not spend in December thinking there'd be some sales? Did, you know, what's going on there? So, uh, for us, you know, we, we, we look at this, the, the only piece of this is we're really internalizing ability in, in a fixed income. Is that we're on the green run here, maybe a blue run, but just say we're trending down inflation. That's good news because it means that the Fed can stop raising rates probably in a couple months. So before we get to rates, I do want to know kind of what you're thinking there. But just on jobs and wage growth, I mean, Canada saw 150,000 jobs added to the economy last week was the announcement. Um, we did see kind of big gains in December for, for the U.S., well, I guess why, number one, are we still seeing these incredible job gains? And what does that mean for, for wage growth and, and then eventually rate rate rises? Well, within the context of what we really know, know um, you know, we saw a lot of part-time jobs created. We saw average hourly earnings in the U.S. fall a little bit. So the Canadian number was very hot. The U.S. number, I have more question marks around. I think it, it was okay number, certainly not indicative of a recession. But I don't think the U.S. number that even today, the data today, that was not explosive or compelling to me that we're off track on inflation. The Canadian number is a little bit different. Um, and if you're the Bank of Canada, you know, you're probably sitting there if you're, you know, Governor Macklin saying, I really don't want to raise rates again. I really, really don't. Um, but Canada might have to put some back on the table at some point to get another month like that. Whereas in the U.S. here, I think the Federal Reserve has said, we're going to raise rates a couple times. You know, um, the bond market, the sell-off you saw in last week, all it did is it added those two rate hikes back in because the market was kind of squishy on those. We added those two rate hikes back in, and we took a rate cut in 2023 off the table. So with the bond market saying now to the U.S., with all this data and this wages, is that, hey, we're going to be over five on the Fed funds rate, and we're not going to have a cut in 2023. When you go back to the wage story, Wages are interesting. No matter what, you think wages should be stickier because we've had this conversation. If you look at G10 demographics, labor forces are in decline. And even in Canada, U.S., where the labor forces are growing and populations are growing, our labor force growth is nothing like the 1970s. We're not spewing out a whole bunch of young, you know, hotshot kids that are going to take jobs in the marketplace. Um, we, we, it's growing much slower. And then I was even talking with China, even China, where you go back to the 1990s and early 2000s when we had the, the urbanization from rural to urban and the productivity gains and all that surplus labor. There's none of that. So, you know, wages probably are going to be sticky. And then the last little piece, the wage cuts that you've seen in the last six months, the, cut, the, the job cuts have been mostly white collar instead of blue collar. That's 180 degrees different than historically. Blue collar workers Typically, when they lose a job, they stay unemployed for longer, partly because they won't leave their job. Maybe they have a specific skill and they're just waiting to get hired back. Whereas white-collar jobs, typically those people have 
higher education attainment and they're more mobile, right? And so they'll reprice faster into the marketplace. So the other thing that could be going on here is we have a little bit of a mixed shift on who's getting laid off. Does the bank, did Bank of Canada put themselves in a tough spot by basically saying they're going to pause rates? Um, do you think, I mean, you said they may have to do that. The next announcements in March, are they going to, Gonna, do you think stick to the pause or, they, or are they going to be forced into maybe making a difference? So I, I, because Canada, it's, it's mortgage market is so much set on, on resets and it's an arm market. Whereas the U.S. today, unlike 08, U.S. is a fixed rate market, like 99% or something like that, fixed for life kind of thing. Um, uh, the Canadian market isn't that. And I think the, the Bank of Canada thought that reset of rates would be a bigger, faster drag on Canadian consumer and Canadian household just because you're going to have to pay more to your your mortgage. And if you happen to be coming off of, of a fixed term and you go to IO, which is interest only, um, you thought that would be a factor. So I think the bank kind of wants to sit in their hands because they think this will bite. Um, but 150,000 jobs, if that's confirmed at all in the next couple months, I think that that'll be a really hard position to hold. Let's talk about the bond market and and uh, how is the bond market reacting to all this news? What are some things you're seeing when it comes to yields and, and, and the various metrics and factors that you look for? So the number one thing you think about is we we talk to clients, this is the anti-08. I think there's this view that, oh, I just have 2008 right around the corner. Uh-uh. 2008, you know, we had a crisis driven basically out of the United States. Um, we had 60% of the mortgage market in the United States was conforming mortgages. That means LTVs were contained. The other 40%, not so much. And then they packaged those loans in the not so much area into banks, included the world's banking system, and we had a banking crisis. We had a nice, you know, then you, you fast forward, then there's so much regulatory reform, bank reform. You know, governments around the world never let a good crisis go to waste, and they didn't. And you fast forward to today, and the U.S. banking system is rock solid, has asset stress tests. Uh, even the, the the charges that J.P. Morgan and so forth are taking, they're kind of like, yeah, maybe we'll have some losses, so we'll take it because we don't have to be tax on it anyway. So what the heck? Um, but if you think about that, this is this is a pretty financial stability is not in question whether it's U.S. or Canada, unlike 08. And then think about this as well. The mortgage consumer in the U.S., because they're all termed and they're conforming, so they look a lot more like a Canadian household, only they have 30-year mortgages fixed, the quick rise in rates means a lot of those people have, can now defease their mortgage with a positive carry trade from government bonds. How good is that? So in this world, U.S. consumers and homeowners aren't feeling pressure at all, not even a little bit yet. They all have jobs still, pretty much. Um, and there's no financial stability, which is to say, so spread sectors, corporate bonds, high yield bank loans, they're all doing okay. And they're trading at the sort of bottom quartile of their long-term spread ranges, which isn't great, but they're there because there is no crisis. There is no anti, there's no wait, there's no jump to default that's just around the corner. Well, obviously, last year was not a great year for fixed income, uh, the worst, I think, on record. And um, But this year, things are different. Yields are better. So is this the year that fixed income uh, rebounds or becomes hot again? It's a low bar for last year. Um, and, and you know what's nice? I was, I've been on a number of calls with some of my big institutional clients in, here in the U.S. and around the world. 
And I said, you think about this. If you put all your net worth into the bond market, like last January, February, you dead wrong timing. You fast forward all the way to today and you're in our portfolio, you're down like 5%. So let me think. In the worst bond market in 300 years, at least 40 years, your negative return, if you got it dead wrong, is 5 or 6%. That's an amazing asset class, right? So the good news is that 5 or 6% negative return, which no one loves, but it's still better than nothing, is turned into yield and turned into a compelling amount of yield versus any long-term inflation expectation. I think you're right. People forget that it's it's 5% versus, you know, the 30% in the equity markets. So in terms of your own mandate, I mean, how are you positioning yourselves given, you know, the rebound in bonds today? Yeah. So for clients today, we, we've got a, a fairly balanced portfolio in, in terms of bonds, right? There's no stocks at all. And so we, we you know, we, we've opened up a lot of buckets. So we've taken down our below investment grade to numbers that are, are shockingly low for my clients. So I won't get too far into it, but they're, they're, we have a lot of room, uh, a lot of headroom in our below investment rate buckets. We've kind of upgraded our below investment grade by credit quality, gone to double Bs. The way we look at double B companies when we pick them is we think double B companies can be pretty much any credit rating they need to be. They just think that the best place to maximize shareholder value is a double B. But if there's no access to credit at double B, uh, they'll put their back into it, gets an investment grade and access credit that way. So we like double Bs because we think that loss in default, even if you're really bearish and there's a hard landing, will be really low. So we like those. Um, we're still okay with floating rate notes, but we're pulling those in. You know, we love the floating rate notes because they're priced off the cheapest part of the yield curve where the Fed's doing the most work. And like I said, probably no cuts into 2024. So that yield will stick for a while. The problem with those floating rate notes is they're, I call them small old ones. The day the Fed changes their mind and cuts, Towards their, you know, 200 basis point where they, they're sort of, uh, their, their long-term Fed target of 2%. Once they cut there, you lose all that yield fast. So we've taken some chips off the table there. And then we like duration. So a year and a bit ago, we were really short duration. Um, 10 year yields at 1%. Overnight rate was at zero. There was just no capital gains to be had in the market. Fast forward to today, there's a lot of capital gains to be held in the market, especially if you think the 10-year at 380 today can get to, um, you know, if, if inflation gets back to that 2% target that the Fed set, right? In that world, there's some real money to be made in the bond market. So we've added duration, not crazy amounts. We've taken some high yield and below investment rate off and upgraded where we could. We've taken some floating rate off and moved it out of the curve. Just to dig into that a bit more, the I, I think, yeah, you had said, or it came up a conversation previous to this, that you were the lowest level of non-investment uh, grade exposure in Canada, I think, ever in the mandate. And, and I, why is that? I mean, if, you don't, if you're not seeing defaults kind of around the corner, um, why, why you know, move up that curve? Why, why do you not want that at below investment grade? You know, that's it's a great point. It, it's one of these pieces. If you think about liquidity in the bond market in the last 12 months, we've had basically seven months where liquidity was eh, not so great. You could sell stuff, but not at good prices, bid ask wide. You really had sort of a five-month window episodically where bid ask and people really wanted bonds. We're in a window right now where there's kind of a bit of a food fight for spread product. And so the thought process you have as an investor, and you, like for us and for clients is, okay, if, if I'm holding out for a single point, or percent or two in this portfolio, 
what am I doing? Because I could lose that in my bid ask when I try to sell this later. So we've kind of taken this as a chance to sort of clean out the portfolio, take advantage of the liquidity. There's a, 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 a huge demand for these bonds. I like the bonds that we're selling, but I don't love, love them. And I think that they're kind of generic risk. And so if I can get them sold at really good prices for clients here, leave lots of room and still have a nice weighting. So we're still going to yield north of six and a half percent when this all said and done. I feel like that gives us so much flexibility for clients in the coming months and years. What's uh, on duration and price? Uh, what's better, yield or capital gains? Um, or how do you balance the two? Yield. I want yield. I, and I hope that interest rates never rally. You should know this. If I could keep for clients six and a half percent interest rates, have a duration around six for the rest of the time and compound for my clients. And as inflation falls to three and four percent, it stays there. Our clients would be fabulous. The, the, the total return would just be parabolic. The sad part, that's not how the markets work. As soon as we decide inflation is going to be two, we're going to decide the 10 years is going to be 270, right? And so it has to go from today's 3.8 to 270 like that. And then they'll do that 100 basis points and they'll make a 6 or 7% return in a handful of days. So you kind of force as an investor to say, we hope that rates stay high, that we can compound for clients and have as much yield as possible. But you have to be ready in this market that capital gains are an, a possible outcome. And not just a, a low probability. Like to me, and we have some modeling here, it's like a 50-50 chance of a, a big capital gain. And so you got to set clients up for that. So how do you do that? I mean, what do you do differently knowing that it could turn so quickly? Um, as you said, there may not be a rate uh, decline in 2023. That might be off the table. But how, how do you position your portfolio kind of today versus in anticipation for an eventual rate cut that could bring yields down? Well, so one of the things we do is what we're doing right now, we take some of our floating rate off and we term it, put it out in the middle of the curve. Right. So we take floating rate uh, risk off and we term it into five and 10 year bonds. The focus for us right now is that five to 10 year private curve. We think that's the sweet spot. Um, it's got the most uh, yield and bang per unit of risk in the markets. So we, we take some floating rate off here. Um, we try to buy it using treasuries. Our thought process on treasuries is just in case there is a hard landing, treasuries will do better than corporates will. And just in case, um, inflation does reaccelerate, which is not our base case and it's a, a, a tail at this stage. In case it does, we'll have one trade and we can get our clients short duration again to protect the portfolio. So we feel like that owning that five to 10 year part in treasuries and not gumming up the portfolio with a ton of yields so of taking profits and high yield, that gives the highest expected value. And it also maximizes flexibility just in case the tail events is either Hard landing, which means rates go a lot lower, and so tens do very well, but corporate bonds maybe not. Or inflation does start pricking back up, and we all say, "Oh, oh five's not going to do it for the Fed." In that world, we, we're one trade and a few minutes away from getting our clients to a way better spot. We talk a lot about returns on these webcasts, but um, the advantage of higher rates has also been on the liability side, especially for pensions and. Uh, maybe talk a bit about that. So the impact of higher rates on that liability side, what are you seeing there and how does that impact uh, maybe the way institutions should think about stocks and bonds? Well, we've had an amazing run in risk assets in the last few years. And not only that, we've had so much fiscal spending, especially from the U.S., 
that the bulk of public pension funds in the U.S. that I'm part of are almost fully funded or maybe surplus, right? And if you have a surplus and you have a governor, the governor may want to grab some of that surplus. So you're going to have to find a way to spend it. And one way to do that is to sell your stocks and buy your bonds. Bonds make you less and you're still fully funded. And so think about that. that there's a lot to be said here, but the, the market itself, the, the pension industry has done a fab, fabulous job in the last few years. And really on the corporate side, pretty much always has to have um, balanced because otherwise you got FASB charged to take. And then on the, on the, on the, the, the government side and the public side, we've had, they, they really taken great uh, advantage of, of the marketplace. Right now, we have enormous interest from my institutional clients for bonds, particularly tactical bonds. They really want to do something in the bond space. And so I think what they're saying is, hey, I would probably like all else equal to buy more stocks, but I can't really justify it because I'm fully funded. And I don't really love the marketplace. So I'll put some money in the bond market. I'll have a bond product that's a little bit more than just core, so it can compound faster. And then if there's a big fat pitch, I'll have an obvious asset allocation. Do you find, I mean, just on that point, I mean, yeah, bonds have, uh, I mean, been yields have been pretty low for the last decade. Are institutions, it sounds like they're asking you the question, should I be more in bonds? Are you, do you find that they are now moving towards bonds? Have those allocations changed or, or, or still, you know, still taking some time to do that? So it's interesting. I was on with the big state and so they're selling high yield, but they're going to buy us. So they're saying, you know what? I don't want to have a specific high yield on here. I like it. So we're going to take our allocation to our low part of the range for their high yield, wherever that basis. And they're going to give us some of the money because they say, you'll kind of do, in a best case scenario, you can do 80% of high yield. And if, if things do go for hard landing, you'll do way better than the high yield and we can go right back in. So I think a lot of clients are, are also saying, especially institutional clients, how can I have more flexibility? I want more flex in my plan. I'm funded. I'm in great state. I've done a great job. My team's done a great job, but I need more flex. And at the same time, I need to compound fast as possible. And so uh, there's a lot of that. When it comes to things like LDI, it's interesting. You know, some some clients, if, if you have uh, a pension and you think you're just going to close it, put it in rundown, LDI takes over. I think um, a number of the, of the clients that we have that I'm working with directly, and these are big states in particular, are saying we, we want to compound faster than the price level. That's your your job, Jeff. Beat the price level here. And that way we'll keep, we'll keep um, pace with things. Um, and, and I, and again, I think where we, they are is they say this is sort of the least bad idea they may have. And they definitely do like yields here. And they kind of, I think, view that the Fed has done a lot. We don't have a, a really big torrent of fiscal spending like we did in the last couple of years. And so there's a lot of reasons to like inflation rolling over, right? Um, and then at the same time, when you look at long term, just demographics, you think that you know, the population of G10 is in decline pretty much other than Canada US. And, and China's population will fall by as much as 30 million people a year starting the next four or five years. Already the population has fallen by at least a million. We don't have great numbers. So if you think that GDP is the number of workers times the output per person, the number of workers is going down. GDP is going to have a headwind unless you think a bunch of 50 year olds are going to have a productivity mirror. Um, just back on the opportunity side, just geographically, how how much does sort of 
geographics factor into the where you look and the way you invest? Um, and, and do you notice big differences in yields maybe in different parts of the world? Yeah, so if you think about our, our taxable product, um, we do, this is a global opportunity set. We really focus on the global opportunity set. And, and what we're doing when we start, we have this five-step process, very disciplined, experts at every part of the process. It's not just me and my colleague, Mike Clay, just you know, pulling stuff out of her, you know what. Um, when we look at the global opportunity, we look around valuations to start things. Can you make a lot of money or not a lot of money? Because for clients, you want to be able to say to them, hey, I think there's a big chance here for a capital gain. Or for your clients, say, I wouldn't come to this asset class. Or if you do, you want to be super defensive or have really uh, modest expectations for yield and so forth. If you look at the global opportunity set, it's improved vastly in terms of yield. The U.S., obviously. Canada, definitely. But even in Germany, we've gone from negative yields, which I think were in, uh, a terrible idea. They, I think anybody who bought real estate in Germany in the last three years, you know, went by mistake, um, had not enough equity in there and paid too much for the asset. And they're going to almost clearly take a charge. That's the Netherlands put them in the same camp as Germany with that. And so when you think about global two, it's improved there as well. When you think about currencies, euro, yen, dollar. The dollar's in great shape. I, I'm not a big believer that EM here is going to rally. So if you're in a believer in EM currency, I'm not there. I think that Brazil and Mexico, you can, you know, I'm, I'm long those local currencies. So you can take that for what it's worth. I think the next peso can do well as long as yields stay around 9%, which is to say it can stay at 1850 to the US dollar plus minus. Um, Brazilian real can stay above five to the big dollar. Um, if yields stay around 14. I like those because you're grabbing the yield, but I'm not really calling for a big appreciation. Most other EMFXs are going to struggle against the big dollar here. When I look at the euro versus yen, uh, both the euro and yen look on better footing today than they were a year ago. Why? Interest rates are going up. Even in Japan, government growth is done. We have a new government coming in, uh, which is going to start slowly edging out of YCC and yen. Um, but it, what's more important? Is because um, commodity prices have fallen, the current account surpluses that were endemic, Japan and Europe are back, which means they're net sellers of U.S. dollars, bringing balance to currency markets. And so that helps a lot. But again, I don't want you to think that the, I think the yen can rally a long way here. The euro, I don't think, can rally hardly at all. It's just not going to sell off a lot. What about Canada, U.S.? Especially have, if we do have a diverging central bank, one raising rates, one pausing what does that mean for our currency? But I think the big dollars can be tough right now. Um, and, and certainly if the bank hands on hold and, and the Fed keeps raising rates, and if they do more than two, that will put downward pressure on the Canadian dollar. Having said that, um, Canada's immigration numbers are off the charts this year. We're talking 900,000 on a 38 million you know, country. Uh, and a, a lot of those immigrants are going to come in. And some of them... 300,000 plus are going to be Ukrainian immigrants and they're going to come in with not a lot of dough, but you know, work ethic. Yes, not a lot of dough. But, um, the other part of the immigration base, there's a lot of people coming in with a lot of high end skill and some money. So Canada, in addition to that, you know, with the jobs numbers, looks like it's a fairly dynamic economy. And so that's positive, but I don't see it as a sort of a race up versus the big dollar here. I think the big dollar is in a great spot. Canadian dollars, okay. And the risk of the Canadian dollar here, honestly, is uh, self-imposed here. That 
the number of jobs being created continues and the Bank of Canada can no longer hold the day, starts having to march higher and those resets and mortgages just bite so hard that it, it, it becomes a, almost like a Canadian event. And so if you think about the risk, like in 08, it was the United States and the banking crisis started in the USA. I would argue that if you're worried about something today, it's rest of the world, not USA. Give us give us a quick hit. Three things that you're looking for kind of going forward here in the economy or the bond market. What are kind of three things on your mind? You're watching inflation all day. Just make sure that every month you check in with CPI. And what you're looking for is owners, employment, rent, and wages. OER is the big one. OER is a survey. It's not obvious. If OER goes from 0.7 like it just was to 0.2, inflation in the U.S. is going to fall off a cliff. And you could easily, in that world, OER 0.2, you're talking deflation in the U.S. in June. Okay, I'm not saying that's the case we're on. I'm just saying if that's OER, just one change, keep that in mind. I think the second thing you're you're, you're focused on here, um, just watch to see um, how we evolve in debt ceiling. The one thing you have to do, don't worry about debt ceiling until after April. Why? Because the debt ceiling is is not going to bite until you see tax receipts in April. If tax receipts come in around 100% of where they were last year, which is likely, the debt ceiling is not an issue until November. Okay? So don't do anything until you see tax receipts in, in April. And then I think the, the last piece here, uh, I like risk assets, but they keep doing better and better, especially spreads. I think if you're a gradual contrarian at all, Try to peel some of that off and, and kind of be patient. All right. We will leave it there. Great discussion as always. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.